Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low-maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to Trailblazers on SENZ. I'm Ricky Swanell. And my guest this week is the female athlete of the decade in stand-up paddleboarding, 2012 to 2018. She's paddled the cook straight and done everything there is in the sport. World number one. Annabelle Anderson, welcome to Trailblazers. Thanks for joining me. Ricky, so nice to be here. I think like it probably explains a bit when I if I say to the audience our our listeners that to arrange this interview we had to work around the weather you you live an outdoors life you are an outdoors person you are up the mountain if you're not on up the mountain skiing you're mountain biking if you're not doing that you're on the water you're falling you're, you're doing something where does the outdoor life where was that instilled in you I think I blame my parents for raising me in the, in the back blocks of the wire wrapper, uh, all I had was pet sheep, pet goat, probably a pet calf, a pony, and I didn't really have human contact other than mum and dad. But there's something, there's there's a lifestyle that you, that you live. You live in Wanaka, yeah. uh, you, you, you move down there. Yeah. Um, that ha- that is must just be kind of instilled in you somewhere because you know, other farm kids they might not necessarily be as as into it as active as an adventurous as you are. Um, I have just always had a love of being outside and playing, and I've probably no matter what sport I've done or how serious it got. Um, or the more serious it got, the more I realized that you had to retain some of that element of play um, because otherwise you kind of lose sight of why you're actually doing it. When did you move to Wanaka? When did your family move down south um, from so the Wairarapa? Uh, so mum and dad actually moved here. Oh, so they were living here when I was first born. Then they were in the North Island. Then they came back to the South Island. So this has kind of always been the place that I would identify with as being home it I've obviously been a guest of the country and a guest of the world for most of my life but for the last two and a half years some of that courtesy of uh COVID um it's been really (laughs) nice to be unpacked and be at home is it is it a playground is it is it if you are for someone who you are obviously active and involved in a lot of things is it everything you could imagine at your doorstep it's everything except surf. We have a river wave. Um, but <laughs> for being able to play in every single season, do multiple things in a day, uh, right outside your doorstep, you can always drive or fly to really good surf. 
Yeah, this is true. Good point. Uh, you and I met, well, gosh, we're probably going to age ourselves. Well, I'll age myself a bit here. Probably so about 20 years. Yeah, about 20 years ago now. I was still at broadcasting school um, and I was flatting with Chris Gemmell, mm. triathlete. And you were at that stage when, as we had all these very um, sweaty, very healthy people with lots of bikes rocking up at our house. And you were one of those. You were doing triathlon. I was. Uh, before that, you'd been, you'd been skiing. So, did you have a burning desire to be a pro athlete? I think like many Kiwi kids, you grow up indoctrinated in the pinnacle of sporting achievement. If you are not going to be a silver fern, if you're not going to be an all black, that you want to make it to the Olympics. Um, I obviously grew up uh, under the what I would call the halo of the Anna Koberger days. Um, and we literally were indoctrinated with if you are, if you want to do sport, the Olympics is it. Um, so that we didn't really understand anything that sat outside that. So that was our world, so to speak. Um, so I think everything was like, well, how do you get to the Olympics, and what might that be in? Understanding that now with 20 years on us, <laughs> um, <laughs> we know there's many other ways to uh, succeed and uh, take on the world. Um, but yeah, it was actually probably all about the Olympics, didn't probably matter how or which way. So obviously failed miserably in that one. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, you've you've had great success. As we would hardly say it was a failure, but so you you skied a lot as a kid, and then you moved into into triathlon. So well, I broke sort of myself. Where... I broke myself a lot as a kid. <laughs> oh no, yeah. no. So um, when I was eighteen, I had quite a devastating crash at Mount Hutt, um, and I snapped my tibia, um, did my tibial plateau, spiral fractured my leg, and put a bunch of rods down it, and then. I think a month later, I got acute glandular fever, so I was back in hospital. Um, yeah, I was pretty much sick, learning to walk, um, sick, couldn't really go to school. Life kind of really, really did suck. And then when I finally started to come right, I had the rods out of my leg. I think probably about three months later, I was trying to go back skiing and I hit a tabletop and a ski across, which was sort of it. Cause I was like, great. There's this new part of skiing that's come in and it's fast and it's exciting. Uh, and I think the first tabletop, I, t- the first tabletop I hit in a training run, my right knee blew <laughs> as in no more ACL. Um, at that moment I cut a deal with the surgeon a few days later to not get surgery, but to, I asked him, if I get a bike, a road bike and some shoes and clip into my shoe, you know, clip into the pedals, uh, can I not have surgery? He was like, mm, okay. And three <laughs> months later, <laughs> I was back running. I accidentally turned out a uh Travel in New Zealand junior training camp and beat all the juniors that were there. <laughs> and that was when I went down the triathlon rabbit hole. So how did your eyes then get opened up to sup to set, to stand oh, up paddle boarding? Totally accidental. So <laughs> I, 
<laughs> accidental and incidental. Um, it was, I finished university and it was very much, I needed to, I was like, I need to get a job. Where am I getting a job? Um, that will mean where I go and work. And <clears throat> I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and pretty much feel like I was a hillbilly shipped off to the big smoke. <laughs> had no idea what I was in for um was on a global graduate program and if doing what so what did you so study I, doing global I, so I did commerce majoring in marketing and I did applied sciences um as well when so I was on a global graduate program for a global duty-free um a global duty-free retailer and for everything it was meant to be, it was everything that wasn't. But um, yeah, it was, it was, if there was something that was resilience building, it was that year. Um, I moved to Auckland. I knew nobody. Um, I was working all these random graveyard, graveyard hour shifts at the likes of the airport downtown. I was like, when do I actually get to do the real stuff that this was meant to be all about this wasn't what was in the job description um (laughs) saying that like I was up in Singapore pretty much every six weeks so it was it was about as far removed as you could get from how I had grown up I lived in Ponsonby you know in that Ponsonby Freeman's Bay area and I was like hmm there's boats here Somehow the universe convened, the universe, the stars aligned, the universe convened. Um, and somehow I just started jumping on boats, had no idea what I was doing. And that was my escapism from life in the concrete jungle. So I would still ride, I'd still run, um, but I did a ton of sailing. So that was the introduction to the water. Um, we had just done the Auckland to Fiji yacht race, and I think it was maybe 2008. And the boat was parked out in um, Musket, in the middle of Musket Cove. I needed to get out to the boat. I either had to wait for a, a long boat to take me out, or there was a there was this long looking surfboard thing um, with a paddle beside it, uh, waiting on the dock, and so, someone that was on another boat was like, oh yeah, just take that. So I took that. That was the first time I still on the board. <laughs> um, and then I kind of still on a board a little bit when I went back to Auckland. Obviously at that time I was working for um, an American financial services company during the oh GFC. That was an interesting one. Oh, good. Um, I think I managed to survive four rounds of redundancies before I finally got the golden handshake. Um, <laughs> I would, to be able to sort of cope with the pressure of, what was going on I would <clears throat> like run down to the run down to West Haven Marina grab a boat a, a board off the back of a friend's boat and paddle up the harbour um, and then back against the lights of the cityscape and kind of go okay I feel okay so that was kind of what I a little bit what I did I got made redundant I was like okay I just shut up shop in Auckland pretty much put all my gear in storage and hightailed it back to Wanaka uh, for the winter and went skiing, cleaned holiday houses and tried to put myself 
back together bit by bit. And that was when I realized like burnout is actually a thing. Um, mm. I was a fragment of my former self and I think I'd been probably living on eggshells for a really long time. And at the end of that winter, I was just like, I'm either applying for jobs. Well, I was starting to apply for similar jobs that I'd been doing. And that was when it really scared me that I either went back to my old life, which was yeah. from the outside, looked amazing. I could kind of do whatever I wanted or I could go and have an adventure. So I packed my bag or oh, sorry first of all I got my work visa because I think I was 28 at this point it was like I either you did it and I had to go so I got my work visa I packed my sold my life packed my life into two bags and hightailed it to London Wow. And London right, hold was- that thought. We'll take a quick break here on Trailblazers and we'll be back um, with our guest Annabelle Anderson shortly. And I'm just going to write down that time so that I don't cock it up. Cool. <clears throat> cool. Awesome. All right. All right. Welcome back to Trailblazers on SCNZ. My guest is champion stand-up paddleboarder Annabelle Anderson, who basically gave up the corporate life and packed her bags and sold up and went to London uh, and had started paddling in, out on the Waitemata before that. But how did you, how, I mean, you go from Auckland to London, ultimate concrete jungle, not a whole lot of um, sea and whatnot there. So how did you then translate what had been just having a paddle for your mental health more than anything to a, a competitive and, and a career from London? Once again, very accident, <laughs> very accidentally. <laughs> um, and so basically that continued. It was, I had this, I've always had this thing about being a, as close to water as possible because there's just something about the energy that water gives. It has a, a peacefulness, a calmness. And so living in the thrust into the concrete jungle of London um, in the midst of the GFC um, trying to find a job just hustling like hell it felt like um, I would and so to to save money I would either run to my temp job um, which I think it, it took maybe three to four months to like actually get like a proper <laughs> contract so you know definitely not an easy ride definitely not a an easy rider or a soft landing um and so I would either run or bike on this like dilapidated mountain bike that had <laughs> no back brake I think it only had a front brake and not that good at that um but you couldn't steal anything off it so it was okay um and I think I tallied up that each week I was probably commuting 120 to 140k <laughs> so I got accidentally fit and so I would try and make the commute as much fun as possible of going I'd go through parks and I'd always kind of live I lived in southwest London so I was always kind of close to the river and I would run beside the Thames and I would look across amazing way to see the city it was a great way I actually loved it people were like how are you coping in the concrete jungle I was like trust me I'm fine yeah <laughs> I just turned every day kind of into this little bit of sightseeing and a sightseeing mission with a little bit of adventure um and it was literally like you got to be a tourist in London and watch it sort of on fast forward over a, a long period of time which was incredible but I would see these rowers 
um, on the tens and it kind of made me go, mm, that thing that I did in Auckland. I wonder if I can get one of those boards here. And this was sort of when stand-up paddling was very much in its infancy globally. And so I did some sleuthing, did some you know, background detective work and was like, oh, there is boards in the UK. And it's just like when you live in essentially terraced housing mm. in London where do you keep a board oh. <laughs> so anyway I think I, I I've actually always been quite disciplined about certain things of going you're not getting a board until you get your tax refund so I, I think I waited like 10 months and it was about tax refund. My tax refund was probably about exactly the same amount as what it cost me to get a board. So I bit the <laughs> bullet, got a board, and was like, mm, "Just going to have to hide it because I lived right beside the Thames, um, beside Battersea Park, and so it was incredible." And I was like, mm, "I wonder if I can just." I would literally have to like run for it maybe or like walk at pace with a 12 foot six board on my head <laughs> through the streets to get to the entrance of the river, which was right beside, you know, obviously right beside me, but I, you can't jump over the wall. Um, you have to go to one of the um, the little inlet, you know, um, where there's st- actually steps to get in. Yeah. And then I'd try and sort of hide this board under the hedge of our you know, apartment building thing. Well, that lasted maybe a week until the building manager like pinged me. It's like, really need to do something about that, okay? So about that time, I was running along the towpath at Putney Bridge. And so at Putney Bridge, it's where all the very, um, the very elite and exclusive rowing clubs are. So yeah, running along there one day and I'm like, oh, there was all these boys outside getting a boat back onto its cradle, etc. And I was like, you're going to have to do it now. You're going to have to be really brave. <laughs> and I literally just asked, like, can I talk to one of your coaches? Well, it turned out that the coach of London Rowing Club was an Aussie and he goes, oh, yeah, all the surf lifesaving guys do this at home. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. You can, to- just, you can totally uh, put a board under the bottom of, um, all the boats, etc. So I became, according to the rowers, I became the silver surfer on the Thames and got some really, really weird looks. But they were really <laughs> lovely to me. Oh, amazing though. That's the Kiwi Aussie thing mm. in, in London. So you started doing that from there, but to then start competing must have been a whole other mm. step to, to it, actually think, oh, I'm, I'm okay at this. I can, in the, in the competitive side, to flow again. Okay, so I was a Kiwi on tour. As you will well know that when you're <laughs> overseas, you do things that you will not do when you're at home. I had mm-hmm. found out that there was a, what was called the Yeva World Cup in Hamburg, Germany. But I had also found out, being the Kiwi sleuth that I was, that if you got a pro invite, the whole weekend was paid for. So I managed to email them and absolutely wing it, get myself a pro invite. And then I was like, then somehow that via an importer distributor in New Zealand managed to get a board taken from somewhere else in Europe to Hamburg. So I turned up two days early and I had two days to figure it out. And this thing was 23 inches wide, which is really narrow. It 
looked like a dugout show. And I was like, okay, I've got two days to figure this out. I went back to London with 2,000 euros in cash in my pocket going, where the hell are we going next weekend? <laughs> and that was at it. That was and like, I, that you caught the bug. Like, uh, A, you, you three, were good at it because you, you made 2,000 euro and you were like, this is the life. I, I think it was more the thrill of the chase of you'll do things outside of your home country than what you would be doing at home because there's no prejudice. No one knows who you are. Um, and I was like, oh, this could be a ticket to travel and have all these adventures that I'd always kind of wanted to have that had never actually had. Three months later, I managed to kind of do the same thing and talked myself into, uh, managed to get an, um, uh, an, a, an entry to a sold out event in Paris, which was in December. So think Paris, winter. Yeah, yeah. It was called the Traversé de Paris, which was, a, I think, like a 10 kilometer race across the Seine, which was run in conjunction with the Paris boat show. I think I, I had to pull rabbits out of hats to even get there because there was a snowstorm sweeping across Western Europe. I got the last train out of St. Pancras. I get to Paris, find my way, my way to the uh, Microsoft auditorium where the briefing's been held. And all of a sudden this auditorium full of 400 people that are going to paddle across the Seine the next morning. Uh, they're all very solemn and I'm around the guy next to me. I tap him on the shoulder because he kind of looks like he knows what's going on. I was like, excuse me, what, what is going on? And he goes, oh, there is a snowstorm uh, coming through tomorrow morning. Only 30 people get to uh, paddle tomorrow. And I was just like, okay, uh, I better be one of those people. <laughs> managed to and uh, managed to make it to the start line and that day I managed to finish third boy and I was like that was that was kind of the catalyst where things kind of went from and so it was really more like for the next 12 months it was very much an adventure I called it the honestly I look at the time I called it the amazing race around the world I look back on it it was the amazing race around the world it was there is um and it was the pay must, sorry, the play must pay. Basically, I gamified the whole thing and it was like, can I pull this off against the odds and make it work? I had, but remembering that I had never actually surfed a wave either. <laughs> I um, idea that this was, you know, like predominantly a surf sport. <laughs> Uh, spoiler alert, my guest Yanuel Anderson did pull it off. We'll just take a quick break here on SCNZ. You're listening to Trailblazers. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Trailblazers on SCNZ where my guest is Annabelle Anderson who has somehow managed to be a person who had never got on a stand-up paddleboard to being a champion paddleboarder in a space of a pretty short space of time. At what point did you go from blagging your way into events somehow and as you said gamifying the system to it becoming your full-time job effectively uh so that was very much I would say 14 months into it um yeah first of all after going through a very corporate post-university career um having the rug pulled under you know sort of right out from underneath you um and you and honestly, probably at that point, I was still almost hell-bent on going, I can prove myself in the concrete jungles of the world. Um, and this is the expectation, probably perceived expectation more than anything. And it's like when I was in London, I 
did corporate affairs for Rolls-Royce Global. I did really quite cool stuff in that realm. Um, and I never really took the, I, I never even thought that it might be a, a con, I don't even think it was a concept that I could have a an, another life as a professional athlete and go down this rabbit hole, this tangent of global adventure, which is what it turned into. So there was 12 months, which was very much letting go of every constraint and learning to roll with the punches, pull everything off. And once I proved to myself that I could do that, um, and so this was end of 2011, somehow I was very much number two in the world and I was like, okay, I came, I can remember so distinctly coming back to New Zealand two days before Christmas going, okay, got a year to make it. And for the next two months, kind of put my training background that I, you know, all that former knowledge um, that I developed since I was in my early teens to work. And I think First or second race, but like well, I was lucky because there was really good competition in Auckland and the boys were really fast. I turned up and I beat the boys and then I kept beating the boys and then I kept beating the boys. And 2012 and 2013 were all about uh, accidentally beating the boys until I wasn't allowed on the start line with them. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because, you know, it, it's, sup and stand up paddle boarding it, it's it was probably still a very fledgling sport at that time in terms of the organization and all of that mm. that did they not know really what to do with you they had no idea what to do with me um yeah it was girls are very much seen as oh let's be honest kind of second rate citizens <laughs> you're there to yep. you're there to um you race after the boys uh your prize givings take happen afterwards you're there to look pretty in bikinis. Uh, you're not. You're there, but you're not really there. You're the garnish. You're the bit on you're the side. Very much the the aperitif. <laughs> um, you know, we kind of were there to kind of make things look look pretty. So it was quite awkward when I turned up, and I didn't start just beating guys. I was winning by a lot, and. It was more, my preparation was really good. Um, I spent a ton of time working on board designs, testing. I did go and learn how to surf. <laughs> um, and I just put myself in any and every condition to prepare for these long tracks of time that I spent overseas. And it was like, I'm kind of here to win. Oh, well, I'm I'm here to do a job. If that means that I have to, you know, basically win to make this work, that is my job. Um, because I know how much the boys got paid compared to me, and it was very, it was there was a lot of very awkward conversations of, oh, she won again, and uh, basically I was cheating. Uh, it ca- the retaliation from all of that came from all angles and then it started coming from girls as well Mm -hmm. and it was one of those things of rather than rather than embracing um what it was like I accidentally was better it wasn't from anything 
wasn't from going out and actively trying to be. It was just I'd always seen other people on the same start line as well, it's no difference where, whether it's a boy or a girl. And thankfully I've done a ton of stuff with boys over the years and they made me better. And so it was just mm. like, oh, I just keep up with them. And then all of a sudden, oh, my goodness, I'm kind of in front. At what point in that did you have, I guess, the courage and the confidence to to stand up when it came to the pay equity, the billing that you, that the women were getting and say, actually, this isn't good enough and, and to sort of fight your cause and fight your corner a little bit? It took pretty much uh, – it took until the end of 2017 and – I had to bite my time for so mm. long um, because you also can't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, they all think that they're giving you more than you deserve, you know, maybe more than you deserve. And there's always every single excuse that would come of like, but there's not as many girls and there's not as much of this. And there was every excuse under the sun. I've, I've, I've seen it and I've, heard it and I was just like well that's fine just pay deeper in the boy and the men if there's more of them um but at least be seen to be equitable um there were some events and some event promoters that were incredible and they were always fair and I just had a thing of if you are fair I will go out of my way to be wherever to support you Mm. and the values that you hold so you do things like that where you support the people that share that you know, that equitable, you know, that value of um, equal opportunity. But it wasn't until the end of 2017 when I knew that I was done. I had stretched the rubber band so far for so long. And the guys, there was an event in San Francisco that was a Red Bull event and it was the richest one on the calendar. I think it was 50 grand um, prize purse. And the event promoter I'd had a very long and storied history with over the years, like maybe two or three weeks prior in Denmark, he'd been like, yes, Red Bull, heavy water, you're in. I was just like, yeah, I'm just waiting for the invite. Um, and the invite never came. And then we finish up, you know, the last major event of the season that everyone, you know, that's open slather. And the only event left on the card for the year is Red Bull Heavy Water. I'm still in California. I see a postcard, literally, that the green light got given for the waiting period because they would only hold it if the once the waves were forecast to be 10 foot and above. So picture this, 12 foot 6 carbon matchsticks going out through 10 to 15 foot at Ocean Beach finishing uh you know like literally in and out of the surf so surf life-saving style and then finishing under the golden gate bridge totally doable but but you're going to be invited but first of all you have (laughs) kind of have to be invited um so really it doesn't matter yes there's a skill element to it but there's huge amounts of um like you you don't go and just throw yourself into those situations you actually need to do a ton of breath hold work um, because you're going to get held down, boards break. Like majority of the people that started that event didn't actually finish and they were guys. Mm. Um, but I was just like, enough's enough. I have been absolutely on the tier all year. No one can question me. I 
by that point I like I'd had contracts broken from like from commercial sponsors so I was like I actually have no one to piss off but I have a lot that needs to be done for the greater good and so I literally just asked the question of like in 2017 the boy sorry this week the boys get to raise 50 grand in 2017 are we okay that the girls didn't get invited so very much just asked the question and that was that just like open that really did open the floodgates um the floodgate kind of became um literally just like a white wall of water when I got a call from Eric Logan who at that time he was president of the Oprah Winfrey Network um he's now heads up the WSL and he goes he calls me and goes let's do this what do you want as the outcome and so from there I orchestrated um a very time sensitive campaign (laughs) where I was just like the only way this is going to work is if we rally all the females um, and collectively drop a campaign via social channels to coincide with the start of the live feed. They can't stop it. And it gathered momentum from there. Took hold. Guess what? Equal now. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Um, My guest on Trailblazers is Annabelle Anderson. We'll take another quick break here on SCNZ and come back and hear more about this incredible athlete doing great things around the world. Welcome back to Trailblazers on SCNZ. I'm Ricky Swanell and I'm chatting today with Annabelle Anderson, stand-up paddleboard champion who fought the good fight for equality on the start line for female paddlers. You, you said at the end of 2017 when you really did take up the fight that you, you thought you were probably done. Is that right? Is that where you, you were just, you'd had enough at I, that stage? I think I I had ridden the way, literally, metaphorically, <laughs> the wave <laughs> of I knew it was probably as good as it was going to get um I also knew that there was some underlying health stuff that I needed to deal with um I think when you do things for a certain period of time so back in 2010-2011 it's the excitement and the thrill of the chase of can you pull this off the pressure of having a target on my back every single week the anxiety that goes with that, the pressure to keep raising your own bar is relentless when it's week in, week out. And I think, yeah, I held the number one ranking for something ridiculous, like eight years straight. And so you never actually switch off. It, you know, people think you might, but I don't think there's any way that you really can switch off. And I was very much of the thing of going, this is, this is great, but I don't get the same thrill that I used to get from this. And it's almost mm. like a relief when I cross the line and I win, which was most of the, you know, it really was like 99% of the time. But the pressure that went with that, I was just like, I'm not getting that sense of satisfaction and thrill that I should be getting. And it's, the media is always, well, who got second? And who almost won and the you know the unnecessary things that you have to deal with like someone someone's bitching in the background and uh now you're in the protest room and I'm just like really it's exhausting it is so exhausting and I my why is deeply rooted 
and the thrill of the chase and the sense of adventure. And I was just like, if I can, so I would always travel, pretty much always travel with a bike, um, either a mountain bike or a road bike, um, because that was my way of getting away from a lot of the stuff. Uh, I would surf as much as possible. Um, I would definitely make the most of what I could do, but I was just, I was tired. It was just like, I really was a one girl band, which in some mm. ways was amazing because I could be nimble enough to adjust very, very quickly. But it was taxing of, I was, I was everything, logistics. You have to make all the decisions for yourself. You have PR, to book all your, everything. You have to book your own yeah. air tickets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, know that, but you know that it's going to be done. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. Good point. That that self responsibility element was massive because if something went wrong, it it actually fell back on me. Um, But Mm. the sense of satisfaction of it all coming together was kind of that thrill of the chase. Um, But you can only do it for so long, and it really didn't work. I, I couldn't see another way of if I was a God, I'm going to touch on the gender stuff now. Um, if I was a guy, there might be a, a girl in the background helping, you know, and some, you know, yeah, we're yeah. waiting at home, doing that stuff. It's actually not like that for girls. Or I don't believe yeah, that I know it is. Um, and I really must, I actually, I just wanted to unpack. It was just like, I, honestly, I felt like I'd been in a war zone, PTSD. <laughs> and it wasn't until like I, yeah I had was at it was like the start of January and continuing with my theme of kind of gamifying things and making the boring stuff as much fun as possible um I would have I I rigged up this brand you know like a a piece of driftwood um tied with ropes tied into the ceiling like as a pull-up bar so whenever I walked through the garage it was like you have to bust up three pull-ups but then you do a lot of pull-ups because it becomes a game. It's like, I'm just not going to do them otherwise, but I'll do them when it's like this. Um, and it's kind of the one thing, like the one movement that keeps all your, like all your paddling muscles. And like, you, you've seen all the canoeists in the gym. That they, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 And they've got they, some big shoulders going on. They've got some big <laughs> shoulders. They can, uh, they can dangle a lot of weight and pull themselves up very quickly. And so this was my way um, of keeping that stuff, you know, fresh, et cetera. And I think I went for, you know, this particular morning, uh, I was meant to go hike and fly paragliding off Mount Roy with some really good friends. And we went down to meet and wasn't on because of the weather. Came home, did that. Everything felt like the whole ceiling frame fell out and I fell back and cracked my head on concrete. And that was kind of the universe giving me that, uh, yeah, you need to kind of stop. Well, you had, it wasn't um, late, you say you were concussed from that and then you had the really nasty ski accident, was that mid-2018? There was also, there was a crushed thumb. thumb. I mean, like, we don't actually have enough time to list all the injuries that you have had, Um, but the the ski accident was, I mean, you were pretty close to to death, effectively. You plummeted about 500 metres down a cliff um, and the injuries were extensive. It was a very, very freak accident. Sometimes shit happens and you're on the wrong place at the wrong time. That was me on the 30th of August in 2018. Basically, if you take the left side of my body, 
I blow it out. I took multiple hits from the top of my spine to uh, pretty much just below my knee. Um, the most major one was I um, dislocated my hip, which if anyone knows anything about orthopedics, it's almost impossible to do. You would either break your back or you would break your femur. Um, I blew my left shoulder. I grade four of my MCL uh, fractured my tibial plateau. Um, took a massive hit to the bottom of my spine and my tailbone, um, fractured pelvis, just got away without uh, puncturing a lung. That was quite good. Um, and I got a really nice head injury to go with it. But um, we love to tell the tale and you wouldn't know anything now. Exactly. We can almost joke mm. about the injuries and, and that accident that, that did was so severe. But does it mean now when you go out and, as I said at the mm. start, you're, you're skiing, you're mountain biking, you're mm. windfalling, you're whatever, you're shredding with the young kids, you know, with the yeah. next generation of girls. Does it mean you just go out and, and you just do it for the joy? Totally. Totally. I get to, I get to do things for the out-and-out out love of doing. And it's like... I taught myself to wing and foil by myself here last year at the end of winter, which is the, the, probably the hardest place to learn how to do it. That's the coldest water, the most shifty wind. But it was so satisfying to just go back to being an absolute beginner at something. And like I was out this afternoon and like foiling down the lake. And I was like, this is so much fun. and. I think that's uh, it's going back to being really childlike of doing things for the you know the art of play, which gets so forgotten when things get really serious. And so I'm like, well, what are the what are how fit do I need to be? Or oh, sorry, the things that you want to do kind of dictate um, the skills you need to learn, acquire, or you know hone and refine. Um, the gear that you might need or beg, steal or borrow um, and how fit you need to be. And so because of the nature of some of, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, there's still a really high level of fitness required so that you, you can, one, you can enjoy it, but two, so that you're actually yeah. safe, you know, and you're not, um, you're not a liability to others, so to speak. Um mm. Before I let you go, and even though that was a, could have been a great point to finish on, uh, what's the next sort of frontier um, for women and girls in mm. in the broad brush of sort of outdoor adventure sports? I think we are slowly but surely gaining momentum to be the rising tide. Um, I just I get a sense from what I'm seeing, some of the stuff that I'm doing and how that's being received, that there is an appetite for more. Um, I see that from a very multi-generational standpoint of we kind of need the aunties to uh, lead by example and to open the door and pull all the little ones through. Um, when, the other thing too is this winter I... I pitched a concept um, around um, we need to have some girls-specific days, uh, experience days. Uh, these were, this was obviously skiing. It was on mountain. Um, and I have been blown away with the support. Um, and it was, and then even this past weekend, I got to shoot with uh, a bunch of ripping girls of the mountains. And what 
really resonated with me. It was like, when you put, when you create the environment, you make the opportunity, the energy that is created within that moment is quite mind-blowing. And it's like, we just don't get those opportunities. So it's a case of, how I have this term of like, how do we be the change? Because it's one thing to, to bitch and moan and say that there's a problem and there's another one, you know, there's a totally different uh, approach of, well, let's just be the change and let's live our words because talk is really cheap and actions speak louder than words. Annabelle Anderson, it has been an absolute blast. Uh, I have no doubt that you will find a way to be one of the aunties to pull the kids through the door and keep doing what you're doing. And I'm pretty sure we'll probably see you on the start line at the 2023 World Champs <laughs> being held here in New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining me on Trailblazers. You're welcome. So nice to be here. Oh, thank you. That was so fun. Oh, that was really good. Sorry about the battery oh, issue. We that's all good. No, no, that's right. We can just edit that out. Yeah. Easy. Oh, Perfect. we could, I could, I could keep going for hours. We could, we could sort the problems of the world out. Pretty much. Um, but the, the biggest difference was 